You're listening to In Good Will. This is a podcast between me, Marshall Bolin, and my friend, Pastor Stephen Douglas. We have political conversations from different sides of the political aisle, and we try to have conversations that are more productive and uh, more in goodwill and in good faith than the ones that we're used to hearing in the media and from our lawmakers and in the world at large. It's a complex, complicated situation with no easy answers, but uh, we think it's worth trying to improve on the current situation. We have some work to do as human beings, and Stephen and I are trying to do that work and just seeing how it goes as we do that work. Hi, Steve. Hi, Marshall. It's always great to be with you. Um, yeah, I, I really like how you phrased that. Uh, there is work to be done, and uh, we really hope for better conversations between people. All right. Well, today we have an interesting topic. Uh, we've been talking about toxic masculinity lately, and we've seen a lot of examples of that in the news. And uh, so I, I thought it might be good for us to talk about that today. Um, but I think it really requires a good definition. How do we define toxic masculinity? Do you yeah. want to take a stab at that? Well, I've certainly heard the phrase a lot, and I've heard it used in earnest, and I've heard people uh, recoil at the sound of the term. Yeah, what is toxic masculinity? I think what we mean by toxic masculinity is when somebody exhibits behaviors or attitudes that we generally in the past have connected with being male, and they do that to an excessive degree and the people around them uh, find themselves hurt by it in some way. That's my first stab at it. How would you describe it? Yeah, uh, well, let me just say that I think masculinity is important. And so uh, sometimes I've heard people kind of describe any real form of masculinity, any form of maleness um, is in itself toxic. Uh, that it's a problem for society. And I can't agree with that. Um, I happen to be a man. So we, we both happen to be men. And yeah. so, yeah. And uh, so it's, uh, it's sort of cutting our own throat if we uh, say, hey, you know, men suck. Uh, uh, yeah. <laughs> but <laughs> but um, I think that there is certainly a type of masculinity that we could definitely call toxic that is um, a form that victimizes other people um, or that, you know, I've heard some people use it at, in the term of hegemony, creating a, a male only or male centric society um, yeah. that uh, denigrates other people. Yeah. And so certainly we would, we would say there's a, a definite problem with that. Yeah. I can imagine that, if you are someone who exhibits the behaviors that we're calling toxic and you hear us call it toxic, you're probably not likely to be receptive to what we're saying. So uh, that's just a problem that we've got across the board in the language that we're using with each other and in the news. I, I can think of very few situations where somebody is uh, a, a real manly man, a violent person, 
and they come across this term toxic masculinity and then they say, oh, am I toxic? I should stop being toxic. I don't think that's likely to happen. So one of the things I, I hope we get around to in this episode is exploring what, what would it look like to effectively communicate our pain around whatever's happening here in a way that someone might become more receptive to what we're saying. Yeah, I think it's worth saying now that uh, for our listeners, whoever they may be, um, uh, I think that there is a good form of masculinity and uh, something that we should be striving for to honor and, and uplift. And so I, I think even if we just talk about masculinity today in a general term, yeah. mm -hmm. and then maybe we say, okay, how do we define what is, is broken or problematic? Because um, I think if we do start with toxic, then it, um, it can be off-putting or, or uh, you know, cause people to shut down without yeah, it, really considering. probably is going to put someone on the defense and they are going to become even less likely to listen to our complaints than they were already. Right. I don't even, I don't have hard boundaries or definitions about masculinity and femininity, but um, I agree with you. There's, there's no problem with these qualities of being masculine in general. Uh, there's just a, an ex excess of, uh, violence and domination that has been introduced into the ideas of masculinity. And I think we would do well to question that. That's a really good point. So maybe part of our definition today is to look at what is masculine? What, what is masculinity yeah. in general? So Let's start with that. Yeah. Do you, you take a, take a stab at that one. Yeah. So, Okay, I'm, I'm the progressive on this podcast, and uh, I've got lots of friends who are uh, going by different pronouns. They, they were given a certain pronoun early in life, and they said, no, I want to go by a different one. And they got really fed up with these rigid, uh, stultifying ideas of gender, and I, I hear their pain. Uh, I also got fed up with that. But for me, my approach to it when I was younger was to enjoy freaking people out. Uh, if I wore women's clothing or I acted in a way that people thought was feminine or weak or something, uh, I enjoyed kind of getting their goat because I, I like to be an iconoclast. Uh, but there are other people who don't take that approach. They just, they kind of want to be left alone and for them, when somebody says he and they feel like a she uh, or a they, they, it's kind of like a knife that digs into them a little bit every time. And so uh, there's a large group of people who are responding to these uh, ideas of what's male and what's female and saying, it's, this is not cut and dried and I have not had the space that I want in in my world, uh, in regards to the definitions that people have tried to fit me into. So, man, I am on board with that. Um, but for me personally, uh, I, do, uh, I do connect with the biology that I was given. 
I like masculine things to a certain extent. And uh, some of those things would be traditional ideas of uh, endurance. Uh, I like to be able to uh, challenge myself with feats of endurance. And I like the experience of someone saying, hey, thank you, your, your strength helped in this situation. And I felt protected by you. Or I felt uh, I felt safe around you. Um, some of these ideas that we've had traditionally about chivalry, uh, I have a warm feeling for. I know other people see the negative parts of chivalry, but I like this idea of being a gentleman. Of uh, I'm someone you can trust. If you're a female around me, um, I'm going to respect you. I'm not going to. Uh, I'm not going to make you feel too. Uh, watched or desired, or that I'm going to uh, try to try to manipulate you by telling you things that uh, you want to hear in order to to go to bed with you. Uh, and to me, this is masculine: is to not do that stuff. But I think some of these ideas that we're calling toxic masculinity are uh, the opposite of that, where it's seen as masculine to uh, to try to conquer women in a sexual way and. Sure. Yeah, pat pat each other on the back. Yeah, I convinced her to sleep with me or whatever. And to me, that's weak, and that's not the kind of uh, not the kind of human being that I want to be or that I want to be around. Yeah. So what else? What else is masculine to you, Steve? Yeah. So I, uh, uh, you know, I, I hear some of the things that you said earlier on about people who feel like that they haven't had the space to. Um, really be themselves and when they're not feeling um, when they're not feeling like they're li living into or can live into what they were born with uh, you know I, I my heart goes out to those people I, I, I don't really fully comprehend the struggle um, that comes there I want to be caring um, at the same time I really feel strongly um, that that God has created us to be male and female, that there are uh, sort of roles that go along with that, um, but also that those were created to be good and caring and useful into the world and not meant to be destructive. And so, uh, you know, before we, we started recording, we were talking a little bit, a bit about this. And, you know, for understanding masculinity, going back to scripture, God made humanity and made man for a specific role. And that was to cultivate and to guard the world. Um, and so the, the Hebrew of those words, um, to, to work and to care or to, to cultivate and to guard, um, really give the idea that um, m the masculine mandate by God is to cultivate the world around us, to, to build the world up and to construct things and to construct and build up people and care for them and then to guard them. And uh, to, to be defensive, if we're going to be violent, then that violence 
is meant to be defensive of ideals, defensive of good things. Um, I like to use the word protective. There you go. Yeah, absolutely. Protective. There's nothing wrong with protecting. Right. And so there are times, unfortunately, where we are put in a position where we have to protect people. Yeah. Sometimes with force. Yeah. And if we're unwilling to do that, there's a part of me that would say that there's something missing. There's something not quite right. Or there's there's something lacking in the masculinity there. Well, there's certainly consequences to not protecting yourself or the people that you care about. Right. Right. And so that is something I feel we're called to as men. Um, and that doesn't mean that women can't engage in that, obviously, but um, it is just something that the Lord has made as, a, as the ideals for men. All right. So both you and I think of protecting, a protectiveness as a part of what it means to be masculine. Mm-hmm. What else? Are we missing some other components of what it means to be masculine? Yeah, I think that there is something uh, in men, especially. I, again, I, I don't think that it's, it's always exclusive, but I just think men in general have the tendency to be more competitive um, and more into the building up of things. Um, looking around us and going, I want to make that better. I want to make that more successful. I want to build that thing up. And there's, I think, some glory seeking that goes along with that. And, Hmm. and that can be misused and it can be wrong. Uh, you know, it can go to bad places, but it can also be really good thing of going, I want to do better. I want to be better. And I want that to be recognized. Yeah. Right, yeah. Uh, I can see, when I look at the the stereotypes, and I, I don't always have a problem with stereotypes, I just have a problem with being narrowly focused on stereotypes. But uh, to me, it's okay to look at some stereotypes and say, yeah, I mean, so many of the men that I know, including myself, when we hang out as just men and talk, we're often talking about tools. <laughs> We yeah. like to talk about tools of various kinds. And, Absolutely. Uh, <laughs> if you are just out on a walk through the neighborhood and you see two men standing in a garage talking, they're probably talking about tools. Uh, and even for, uh, you know, femi, weak guys like me who are into the arts and music, uh, I'm talking about like music stuff all the time, I'm talking about instruments and software and recording and all that stuff. And let me just say, I, I, I just want to address what you just said. Like, I don't think that that makes you feminine. You know, um, I didn't either until I read one of the articles that you sent me just this morning. And it, it didn't, I, I didn't even know that part of this uh, attitude of extreme masculinity uh thinks of people who are into music more than sports as being less masculine. (laughs) To me, that is funny. And I will happily uh, take on your, or somebody else's uh, judgment that I'm, I'm weak or feminine 
because I like music more than sports. Uh, I would rather be feminine and spending my time making music than get the designation of masculine and watch sports, which in general bore me. Yeah. <laughs> so, you know, I, I guess I kind of feel the same way. So, mm-hmm. you know, uh, the sports ball game is on, uh, you know, what I, you know, <laughs> uh, you know but, and, and uh, we definitely they, don't want to alienate any listeners who love sports. Um, right. I've got so right. many friends who love sports and, uh, I would like to be able to laugh at you and you who like sports and, uh, to be cool with being laughed at. If you think it's funny that I like music and the arts or whatever, I like even more feminine stuff than that. I like, uh, emotions and feelings and therapy yeah. and stuff like that. And Oh my God, what a, <laughs> <laughs> what a little girl I must be. Oh, I see. And I don't understand labeling a lot of these activities as specifically male or female, masculine, feminine. Um, you know, I remember in high school, my friends thought I was weird because I liked gardening and, hmm. uh, you know, liked cooking mm-hmm. and, um, I like poetry. And so it was kind of like, uh, dude, what's wrong with you? And yet, I also like shooting and, uh, you know, I may not like watching sports all that much and remembering stats and all of that, that just bores me to tears, but I love being out on the court. I love playing football, um, you know, Mm, going out and actually throwing the ball around, um, or playing the game is a lot of fun. Um, but, uh, well, I'd like to go back to high school for myself too. Yeah. I grew up in the same environment as so many people where there were a lot of guys who had this kind of attitude of, you should be macho, you should be strong. And I thought that I was doing that, but I just put some thought into it. And uh, to me, what made sense is, well, what's stronger to go with the flow, even in spite of what I'm interested in, or to sometimes be lonely and be myself and be willing to be made fun of because of what I think is right or what I'm actually into. To me, that was actually being more strong. And to me, logically, that makes sense. You know, I did my own macho thing in my own way, but combined with reading the Gospels as a teenager and just being generally interested in the well-being of the people around me, what it meant to be macho was to stand up for myself or somebody else um, against these ideas of, hey, you're you're being a wimp or whatever. No, I'm not. Uh, It's less of a wimp to be alone and to stand up and to be protective of Mm -hmm. what needs to be protected, even if all the strongest guys are saying, oh, you're, you're a nerd or whatever. Sure. Yeah, no, I totally agree with that. And, you know, I I think part of, and as a stereotype, but I think part of being male and masculine is there is that little bit of competitive, like sizing each other up a little bit. Um, And and maybe that's just testosterone. I don't know. But um, But, uh, maybe it makes sense. Maybe there's meaning there. You know, I, 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 think it's a rich activity to connect with my biology and to think about how I 
connect with all of the human beings that go back to however long human beings go. We developed the way we did for various reasons. Sure. And so um, I like to appreciate and honor and valid- validate these uh, parts of my own biological evolution that might lead to me wanting to be competitive or whatever that looks like that is related to my male biology. Mm-hmm. But I also think that one of the most rich things about being a human being is getting to question and choose whether I actually want to go along with my, uh, with my testosterone or whatever, sure. or to find a better way. Yeah. Uh, because, you know, I think we can all agree that some of the things that just animals do, you know, non-human animals, or maybe our conceptions of cavemen or something, some of those things are very terrible and we don't want to sure. do those things. And it's, right. it's a good thing that we've moved on from being like that. Yeah. yeah. So I think of us as being human beings who are just in this growth experience all the time. We're, human beings are always in a growth experience of saying, here's where I come from. Here's what my instincts and my intuitions say. But at the same time, I have this capacity for self-critique and for... Uh, choosing to behave in a way that is maybe counterintuitive or counter to how my testosterone says. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that's a mark of maturity. And and I think, you know, you were kind of hinting at something that I agree with that uh, there is some kind of deficit in culture now where uh, these ideas of masculinity needed to be reviewed and refined but there has been something of a throwing out the baby with the bathwater. Mm. And it is hard for men to kind of find a way to, to be men and to own that and to, to sink into that. Yeah. You know, I, I really do feel that way. I, the way that masculinity has been presented um, in our culture, especially over the last probably 30 to 40 years, um, most of our lifetime, maybe going back beyond that even, um, has been that um, men are necessarily ruled by their um, desire for sex. Men are kind of stupid. Um, and, and Yeah, that's the message of most sitcoms. Yeah, yeah, and worthy of ridicule. Mm-hmm. And... Um, that there's less and less place in our society for masculinity or men in general. And I think men are being raised with that message and going, where do I fit? Yeah, I was definitely raised uh, by people who questioned the bad parts of masculinity, my parents and my teachers. And man, I grew up learning that... uh, the worst thing to do is to be sexist or to be racist uh, or to, you know, basically dominate other people. And I, I do agree that those are very bad things. And I would even characterize kind of all of humanity's problems as relating to domination and submission. So I'm into that. But I think what happened is we get what uh, the poet Robert Bly calls soft males, 
which are guys who, who learn their lessons at an early age, like me, of like, yeah, I don't want to be like that. I don't want to be like the villains in the movie who are uh, raping and abusing and all that stuff. And we got so afraid of that that we just kind of uh, slinked into the corners and hoped to go unnoticed. And uh, uh, we didn't have an opportunity to maybe roll with some of our more um, generative and protective and even aggressive in the good sense uh, qualities. Mm -hmm. Agreed. Yeah, that is something that I'd love for us as a culture to explore is where are there good outlets? Where, where are healthy places for men to be men? Um, it's not on the highway. Don't yeah. be aggressive on the highway. Don't be aggressive on the highway. I get so mad the way that people drive <laughs> nowadays uh, with the tailgating and the I always I have this these judgments in my head of like these are these are guys who aren't being able to be aggressive in their daily lives and so they're taking it out on the highway. This is a place where they can really uh push people around or something. But uh I see a lot of women driving that way too. Yeah. I just think people in general <laughs> <Yeah>. are less <laughs> patient. Yeah. You know, as we're talking about this, where do you think that uh this kind of um these, the problems within masculinity get started. How are they generated in the first place? Is this just something that's from way back and it's just been passed along from generation to generation? Or is it uh, cultural? Is it social between um, people like their peer groups? Or what are your thoughts? Wow, my thoughts. Okay, so how do we approach such a complex question? Um, I think just human beings in general have a long way to go in terms of noticing that domination is ruining life for us, that there is an alternative to a win-lose model of relating to each other. So that's one thing. But I think what exacerbates the problem is what exacerbates a lot of problems pertaining to emotions, and I think part of what plays into this is that there's no validation for men to feel scared and to own that. And so not only are we trained to not talk about feeling scared or to pretend like we're not scared about things, but this very attitude towards fear leads to a fear of fear. <laughs> so mm -hmm. this is what is so frustrating to me about talking to this kind of stereotypical person, which I've met plenty of times, who they have these rigid ideas of what it means to be male or female or a sissy or whatever. And if I were to try to have a conversation about that with them, which I have, they get really uncomfortable. <laughs> it's like, mm -hmm. I, thought you, I thought you saw fear as something to be challenged. Why are you so afraid of being afraid? Um, and I'm being snarky right now. This, this is a difficult, complex problem that is hard to approach. But I think what needs to happen first is for it to be okay to feel uncertain, to feel worried, to feel nervous, to feel sad, to feel hopeless, to feel angry. A lot of these guys that I know, I can just tell that they're 
kind of white knuckling life, just like a little bit of anger is the only thing that is, is welcome to come out of these guys. And uh, we've got to just normalize it. Yeah. You know, that, that's a really good point. I remember one time, um, well, when I was growing up in, in grade school, I was bullied quite a bit. Oh, and yeah. uh, uh, there would be a number of older guys who would then seek me out on the playground and, and beat me up regularly, almost daily. God, I'm sorry. And there was, was nothing I could really do about it. And so, you know, you kind of go home in tears each day. And so somewhere around, I think it was fourth grade, um, I kind of formed a gang uh, with other fourth graders. Um, and we started singling out the older kids who had been doing this to us yeah. and beat them up. Yeah. Um, and I got expelled. Yeah. for that. So I had to go to a different school. And um, I had a big chip on my shoulder toward bullies from that point on. I remember a few years back, I was uh, preaching and somehow, you know, brought this up as an illustration of something. And, and afterward, somebody came and said, well, what were you a sissy? Wow. And it's like, one, you weren't really paying attention. And two, um, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I want to smack you. Um, yeah. <laughs> like sometimes you, when you get victimized um, because of that domination kind of mentality that you're talking about, um, it is destructive and yeah. damaging to people's hearts, minds, lives. And, and it's very hard to get out of that. So I, I really appreciate the story that you're telling right now. Uh because there are so many situations like this and uh, growing up, going to elementary school comes to mind, being in prison comes to mind, growing up in a rough mm -hmm. neighborhood, all those things mm -hmm. come to mind. And uh, because of this vicious cycle, this recursive situation of when I be myself, when I show any weakness, people actually do pick on me or hurt me how can we blame somebody for developing this protective attitude of um, trying to conceal their feelings? Uh, so yeah, I don't blame anybody. It's, it's a really hard thing to get out of, but I guess I'm just trying to name it. Um, we, we need to try to find a way out of that. You know, uh, I think we've brought this name up before, but Brene Brown um, yeah. has written a number of books about uh, vulnerability and embracing vulnerability which uh, culturally might seem like a very feminine way of approaching things. But I think it's been really, really helpful as a man to be thinking about um, finding security in being open, honest, transparent, um, even with my feelings. And some people don't get that. Right. You know, it's just not part of how they expect things to work. But I have found that being able to do that, especially in counseling and kind of helping to model that has led to other people being able to open up and be vulnerable. And that's led to better husband-wife relationships. It's led to healthier dynamics in a work environment um, yeah. when they could say, okay, 
rather than just getting angry and stuffing or being violent or whatever it might be, I can actually talk about this and somebody's actually going to listen and they're actually going to care and I'll be validated. Yeah. And even if I'm not agreed with. Yeah. I want to compare this to other types of emotional problems. There is always a double bind somewhere in an emotional problem, whether it's a, a problem with anxiety or depression or something like that. And the double bind is when somebody is telling themselves that they must do two contradictory things. And here's the double bind that I hear for males. They're telling themselves that uh, they must not feel or show emotions. And at the same time, they're telling themselves that they must feel or show emotions uh, because of people like us and conversations like this. And when they see the word toxic masculinity. Mm. And so now when we're trapped in a double bind, that's when we uh, retract and withdraw or we, we lash out uh, or we panic or whatever it is. And the way to resolve these double binds is by acknowledging that there are options and that what's normal in life are situations where I don't like any of my options. That's just what life entails. And that's not, it's nothing that I can do anything about. It's not my fault. And so I think that the people that we're critiquing right now, they've already explored the option of um, concealing their feelings or trying not to have their feelings or whatever that looks like, not showing them. Uh, but they also have the option to show their feelings or to have their feelings or to own them internally. And both of those are viable options that both have consequences. Uh, it's okay to feel a certain way and not want to let somebody know about that because you rightly think that they're going to act a certain way. That is okay. And it is also okay to internally own my own feelings and say, well, I'm not going to share them, but yeah, I do feel scared right now. And it's also an option to let somebody else know. And in certain ways, it's actually, uh, people have more leverage over you when they know you're trying to hide feelings than when you just own them. That is a really good point. It's so true. When somebody recognizes that, uh, there, there's a tendency for them to use that against you. Yeah. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm a kid hanging out with some other kids on a bridge, and one kid says to me, hey, why don't you jump off the bridge? And I say, no. And then the other kid says, well, what are you scared? If I say, no, I'm not scared, well, then he'll say, jump off the bridge. And then he has leverage over me because he knows that I, I don't want to be, he knows that I'm looking for respect and I don't want to be known as cowardly or something like that. <laughs> but if I respond by saying, no, I'm not going to jump off the bridge. Yes, I am scared because I see there's rocks down there and I don't want to lose my life. So I'm not going to jump off the bridge. What can the kid really say? You know, what I just described is a way of being brave and owning feelings that I think in some cases can be responded to with respect by someone who is challenging you. I don't mean to make it oversimplified. Sometimes a bully will just keep on being a bully, but yeah. And, and if they do, you know, I think it's hard, especially when you're young and you get peer pressure, it, it's so easy to buckle 
to that, yeah. cave to that pressure. So you get teased. You know, in the end, mm-hmm. what's more damaging, jumping down onto the rocks? Right. Or or just being teased for a few weeks or whatever over being scared to jump down onto rocks, you yeah. know? <laughs> yeah. Um, I, I didn't have as hard of a time as you did when I was a kid. But luckily for me, when I was able to take responsibility for being myself, the bullies usually did get tired. There wasn't a lot for them to work with. God, that's worth a try. If you are someone who is being bullied is Hmm. see if it, see if it helps at all to own it, to take responsibility for how you are. I don't know if that would have helped in your case. Well, I, yeah, I don't know either. Um, yeah, I may not have chosen the best route, but at the time I didn't know any other route to take. Like so many kids right now. Yeah. And I think this is a, com- a complexity that is interesting. What, what is the right way to address bullying? Because I think there are uh, pitfalls on either extreme. On the one hand, I, I want to protect kids from these situations of abuse by their fellow kids and being dominated. And on the other hand, uh, I have benefited from having to learn my own lessons in certain situations. And it has been to my detriment to be protected too much. Mm -hmm. So I'm really, I'm not sure what the best way to try to make things better in the world of bullying is. Yeah, I think that you bring up a good point of it's not often helpful to be overprotected. I guess my advice or suggestion might be that it's important to have a strong sense of yourself, but that's hard to have when you're young Yeah, because so much of your life is trying to figure out where you belong in the grand scheme of things. Uh, especially as you're moving into adulthood, if you don't have that strong sense of yourself, you can get lost in life you can get lost into all kinds of addictions or into, um, you know, the need for other people to validate you. Yeah. And so that's not healthy. Um, I think finding a strong sense of yourself is important. And, and as a believer in Jesus Christ, as a Christian, what I'd long for my children and for other people is to find who they are and who they're meant to be in Jesus Christ, that we have a design from the Lord and a call from the Lord to be uh, in relationship with him and to find confidence in that, that supersedes all the other things of life that, that can be so tumultuous um and that has been i think the thing for me that's kept me relatively centered and grounded going into my adult years yeah i have to say for me too that experience of reading the gospels when i was 14 and 15 and resonating with this character of Jesus and getting the idea that I was supposed to be like that to do the kinds of things that Jesus did 
that really gave me uh, a strong sense of self. And it gave me the, the courage to, to be lonely and to be myself because I knew that I was appreciated and connected to my source. Yeah. And uh, I have met people who, who found their own way to that sense of self without reading the same gospels that I did. Sure. But I, I recommend it. I think it's a good prototype and, and it really helped me when I was younger. And, and, yeah. and it still does. It, it yeah. hasn't, it's not something that uh, has lost its relevance for me. There, there's always something new and poignant and in, in so many ways uh, I'll learn an important lesson in life and I'll discover that Jesus refers to that in like maybe a line or something. Like my whole profession is based on becoming uh, more willing to feel my own negative emotions, you know, like sadness. <laughs> and then I think, I mean, that's the first thing that Jesus says in the Gospel of Matthew after he comes back from his time in the desert being tempted. He, first thing he says is, uh, blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Yeah. My, my whole professional and personal life is centered around that idea of, yeah, you can be comforted. And it's a lot more of a authentic comfort when you're willing to first be uncomfortable. Right. I think so much of our society is geared toward not experiencing discomfort. Yes. Or appearing like we're experiencing discomfort that we put up all these false images of ourselves to prevent other people from knowing what's really going on um, or pain that we might be experiencing. That There's sort of a pull yourself up by the bootstrap sort of mentality, or at least have the appearance that you're doing so. Yeah. That, that nothing is going to, to cause us to, to be moved. I think that's part of this whole thing. I yeah, think especially men feel the need to portray that, that stoicism or that strength. And I'm not sure that's the healthiest thing. Um, it's a matter of extremes. It, it's okay to decide to be stoic for whatever reason. Maybe you have a project and you're going to just plug ahead and you're saying, yeah, I'm going to, feel however I'm going to feel, but I'm going to get through this. Or you're in a situation where you know that people are going to make life harder for you if you show your feelings. That's okay to be that kind of stoic. But at a certain point, uh, when somebody has an excessive amount of stoicism and they're trying so hard to be stoic, it can lead to a situation where they're in torment trying to avoid the unavoidable suffering of life by, I don't know, trying not trying to convince themselves that they don't have any of these natural human feelings. Hmm. And that's sad. And it's understandable. Well, you sent a question uh, along earlier that I think really fits with a lot of this. Maybe you should yes. ask that question. I'll be the asker. Yeah. Um, 
What real problems are people trying to address with their rigid ideas of masculinity? Yeah. Yeah, that, that's a really good question. Like, why be so rigid uh, and maybe narrow in concepts of masculinity? And, you know, as I've read uh, through quite a, quite a bit of articles on this um, and trying to condense some of it, it seems to me that this is a matter of trying to mitigate the fear of loss. Mm. Uh, the, there's fear of being seen as unmanly on one side, and there's also fear of the loss of ability to do things like provide, um, you know, to defend adequately, to, to win, to, to save face in sort of a shame-based culture. Um, yeah. And then there's that whole win-loss thing that you mentioned before. If I'm not the winner, if I'm not the absolute winner, well, then what does that make me? Right. Some sort of loser, right? Yeah. So I think loss has a lot to do with it. What are your thoughts? So, yeah, what are the problems that people are trying to address by being hyper-masculine? Some other things that I think people are afraid of <laughs> who might be uh, taking on a, a hyper-masculinity and they're not going to like to hear this, but they're probably not listening to this podcast anyway. But um, here's some fear that I think I hear behind this. Um, I don't think they really like the complexities of life or the gray area where most of life happens. I think people, uh, a lot, all of us need some kind of structure. And usually it's a different amount based on who you are. But um I think that a lot of people who are hyper-masculine probably uh, feel like they want more clear-cut answers and they want a structure to live within. So they, uh, they tend towards things like the military and the police and law and order and stuff like that. And uh, they seem to react strongly and, and be uncomfortable when faced with cognitive dissonance about something. Sure. Uh, and that's understandable. All of us, nobody's comfortable with cognitive dissonance. That's what makes it dissonant. I also think that people might be afraid of loneliness, the loneliness of being different, of being ostracized, and the vulnerability that comes along with that. You know, if, if I don't have anybody to support me, then I'm vulnerable to attack. Yeah. Um, and so somebody's recoiling against that when they're being hypermasculine. I will not accept a situation where I am alone and vulnerable to being attacked. Then there's also the loneliness of what if I don't find a girl? And since we're talking about masculinity, I'm going to say that a girl, you know, uh, somebody who is hypermasculine that that's what they are looking for is uh, they want to feel what, um, I think they want to be loved, really. Uh, they wouldn't say it like that, but you know, they want to feel special. They want to feel those uh, those boundaries come down between me and somebody else, where uh, I'm in love. I'm uh, I'm in a relationship with somebody. There's more than just me, and I matter to somebody else. There's a there's a book out there um, that's pretty popular in Christian circles. It's called Love and Respect. And 
Um, it, it's kind of based around the premise from the book of Ephesians chapter five, which talks about um, husbands love your wives as Christ loved the church, giving himself up for her and wives, you know, respect your husbands uh, and be obedient to them. Now we, we can get into what does that mean to be obedient and, and power dynamics, but that's not really what it's about. It's actually doing the opposite of power dynamics. It's, it's saying, how can we each get lower than the other person? How can we each take on servanthood to the other person? But yeah. this whole thing in love and respect, what he's saying is um, uh, that men's biggest need in life tends to be the need for respect. Yeah. Whereas for women, the tendency is the need for love. Now, are those mutually exclusive? No. Um, so it's not that I don't need love and I only need respect. But in terms of how I talk and in terms of how I think, am I going to be as worried about does everybody love me or am I going to be more concerned? Am I respected? Yeah. Does does what I have to say have some weight to it? Do do people care? Um, uh, if I have to make a decision, is that decision going to be obeyed? You know, like our people are going to say, "Okay, we're going to run with that," Even or are they, they just going to fight me? Even yeah. if they disagree, but yeah. or are they just going to fight me every step of the way? Um, I'm in many ways more concerned about that, then how do they feel about me? You know, the feeling-based sure. sort of thing. Yeah. Um, and, and like I said, not mutually exclusive, but when I talk with my wife and whatnot, she wants to be loved. Uh, she, she wants to be, uh, to see demonstrations that she is loved and accepted. And, and that doesn't mean that she doesn't want to be respected too. Uh, obviously she does. Yeah. But, um, but I think... There is a tendency, again, stereotypically for men to want respect, women to want love. Um, so I think that comes into play in these concepts of, of hyper-masculinity and what, whatnot, too, is there, that sense of loss of respect, um, yeah. that I'm not a respectable man, that I'm not one that's worthy of other people lifting up and going like, whoa, that's a man. Right. You know, <laughs> right. Yeah. We'd all love that. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, that really tracks with my experience. So I, I've spent a lot of time working with troubled youth who are on probation. One of the things that they almost always listed as a reason for why they would be willing to, uh, commit a crime or get hurt or even lose their life is respect. Mm. Uh, for a lot of people, respect is even more important than staying alive. Yeah. And um, most of these were, were males who were in this program and something is going on here with this relationship with uh, being male and wanting respect. When we look at all of the mass shooters, I mean, I don't even know of one that's a female. I, I don't know that I can necessarily draw a line between a need for respect and being a mass shooter, but I always kind of picture that. That's like a hunch or a hypothesis that I have is that these people want to be, they want to be successful at something. It's uh, 
it's part of the culture of you're only worth something if you're successful at some at something and uh, if you beat everybody at something and for some people I think that can turn into uh, I'm going to be successful at killing you. Yeah. What? How is my name going to be remembered? How right. am I going to mm-hmm. leave a legacy? And for some that becomes twisted and I don't care if I'm famous or infamous. Right. And I don't quite relate to that. I mean, to me, it would be way better to uh, die unknown than to kill somebody. But maybe that's because I have that sense of self. And that, I think, is the key. Mm -hmm. So that's something I have to admit I've struggled with through the years of what is my legacy going to be? What will I leave behind? Will anybody ever remember me? Um, How do I make a name for myself? And as a believer, as a follower of Jesus, he's saying, I need to diminish. I need to get low. I need to, um, you know, not exalt myself, but humble myself. And so there have been times where I could have grabbed at more. I could have built something bigger. I could have gotten the platform and I chose not to. Some people might say, well, that's crazy. Why didn't you do it? For me, because of that sense of who I am belonging in Christ, it is meaning, even if there isn't a name for myself, my purpose is to lift up his name. And so um, I, I can be okay with that. Yeah. I can also vouch for diminishing. When I first started seeing Amar Bharata, my therapist, as a client, uh, like so many people with problems with anxiety and depression, I was trying really hard to be perfect, to be beyond reproach, to be special. And uh, one of the things he told me one day that kind of blew my mind was he said, "I, I think what people really want is to be average. And like so many clients, my first reaction is, what are you talking about? Like, (laughs) that's not what I wanted. But really, yeah, wow. When I let go of trying so hard to be beyond reproach or to be the best at things, there is a, a serenity and a clearness of mind that ironically makes me more effective at choosing which uh, which battles to fight, uh, choosing how much I want to put into working on this or that thing. And in those times in my life where I have, uh, I don't know how to say it, become the best at something or achieved a level of skill that other people uh, thought was noteworthy, it didn't feel good. It didn't feel like I have gotten something I want. Usually it led to an awkward feeling with the people around me of uh, either they're jealous or I don't know how to act. Am I supposed to act like I'm not good at this or whatever? Mm-hmm. And nowadays that's just not, uh, that's not a problem for me anymore. I, I don't need to be special and it feels better to not be special. Yeah. I think we both resonate with that. What do we think might actually lead a person who espouses this 
extreme max masculinity, this hyper masculinity, what would lead them to being more willing to adjust their ideas about masculinity? Man, that's a really good question too. I, uh, it's hard to speak for somebody else. Um, I, I know in my own struggles of thinking through, you know, what does it mean to be a man and uh, how do I implement that? And, and, and I want to be aggressive here or ah, I shouldn't be, you know, all of those sorts of things. Um, I, I, to me, it's meant so much to find that identity in Christ and in that role of cultivating and and defending or, or guarding, um, which makes less of me and more of others. And so it, it, I think it leads to a form of empathy, you know, or at least seeking empathy toward other people. Yeah. I may not always agree with other people, um, but how can I be empathetic toward them and at least hear them? I get the impression, even though I don't have kids, and maybe you can confirm this, uh, I get the impression that the conversation with younger kids is getting around to talking about empathy more than they did when we were kids. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, and that's, that's great. That's an obvious good starting place is when kids are really young and developing to uh, start talking about empathy. And we'll actually talk about this a lot in the next episode, which is about restorative justice. One of the problems with our really punitive approach to justice that has been mainstream is uh, that it doesn't focus on the person who is hurt. <laughs> it focuses on the person who broke a rule. And uh, it's better to build empathy by looking at someone who's hurt instead mm-hmm. of thinking, oh, I'm so bad because I did this. No, look, this it's not that you're bad, it's that you tried to get your needs met at the expense of somebody else's, and now what is this person saying who's hurt? What do they need? But um, a, an even more difficult question is, what is someone likely to be open to who has gone their whole life being in a toxic environment? Uh, whether they learned it from their parents, or whether they developed it in reaction to their culture and maybe even in rebellion against their parents who they thought were too weak. Whatever the reasons, now we have somebody who's an adult and they, they have these hyper-masculine ideas and people are getting hurt around them. Yeah, I'm, I'm not sure that there's any good rational argument that is going to change their minds at that point. I think we're on the same page about that. Yeah. It's, it's not going to work to call them toxic. And right. Hope that they feel right. shame. Yes, a shaming is definitely not going to do it because of the need for respect. Right. So by disrespecting or or being pejorative, it does the exact opposite. It entrenches and builds defensive walls, and they become more so. So here's what I think is profound, and yeah. one of the most profound ideas that I learned from looking at nonviolent communication, which mm-hmm. is a model used in conflict resolution is thinking about the difference between protective force and punitive force. Mm -hmm. So in this hypothetical situation, we've got this guy who's hurting people around them, and we've got to protect the people around him. But if if we just do that, if we say, hey, uh, 
all of you who are getting hurt by this guy, come over here and we're going to protect you from this guy without getting into the uh, shaming of the guy himself. There's more of a chance that this person is going to look at what's really going on in the situation, which is people are getting hurt. Whereas if we protect the people and really punish this person, now this person is going to be defensive about their own self-esteem because they want that respect. And they're going to be thinking about themselves instead of the other person. If we focus on the wrongness of the person who's causing harm, I think it usually leads, uh, it's usually counterproductive. And we don't need to do that in order to protect the people who are getting harmed by this person. You know, one of the things that I've learned from some family members who've been in police work um, is when you've got somebody who's doing this, oftentimes they have made people into the other. Um, and, and so they've made other people diminutive or they've demonized them um, in order to justify their mistreatment of, of yeah. other people. And so um, they're, what they try to do is help this person to identify with the victims, with the other side. Can you find that place of agreement? Can you find that place of putting yourself into another's shoes? Yeah. And I think when we can, if we can be working with the person and, and to be honest, you know, this, and this may seem really counterintuitive and, and sometimes it's not even possible, but if possible, it is really good to enter into relationship with that person. Yeah. Not in the sense of putting yourself in a place of being harmed. Um, and, and maybe there's a power, power dynamic in the way they see, see things that just wouldn't be healthy. So let me just say, if you've got somebody who is hyper-masculine and is using that in a victimizing way that we would call toxic mas masculinity, uh, it is not going to be healthy for a woman to get involved with that person to try to change their mind. Right. It's, it's not going to work. But what needs to happen is peers, people who this person sees as people worthy of respect, turning around and saying, okay, come with me. Let's, let, let's see what it means to be respectful and to do so in a way that is uplifting and not denigrating. Right. And that takes some doing, and it's usually more successful when people are young. It is much harder when you're dealing with somebody who's in their 40s, 50s, 60s. Um, well, uh, it's been a productive, fruitful episode, I think. I've enjoyed yeah. the conversation. Me too. And uh, so we have a, a Patreon going right now. If you want to support the podcast, we can be found at patreon.com forward slash in goodwill, all lowercase. Okay, thanks. See you all next time.